following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Let's talk some more about Hebrews. So last week we focused on a serious passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And I just want to revisit it because it leads us into what we're talking about this morning. This was Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 26. Now, if we willfully and deliberately persist in sin after receiving such knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice left for those sins because there is not another provision that is a provision other than Jesus. There's only the fearful prospect of judgment and fire that will consume God's adversaries. Remember that those who depart from the law of Moses are put to death without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much more severe the punishment will be for those who have turned their backs on the Son of God, trampled on the blood of the covenant by which he made them holy, and outraged the spirit of grace with their contempt. For we know the God who said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, also said, the eternal one will judge his people. It's truly a frightening thing to be on the wrong side of the living God. It's one of the more daunting passages in the New Testament, I think. And the writer of Hebrews is letting it sink in after nine and a half chapters of who Jesus is. He's just reinforcing this. You, you've heard about Jesus. You know Jesus. You need to take Jesus seriously. And it's worth remembering that in this passage, he's talking about people who simply knew Jesus in the sense that they had an intellectual knowledge of who he was. They'd heard the information. In some sense, they had processed it in their heads. It just never jumped into their hearts. It's almost the the idea of if you would ask me what it's like to bungee jump, I can tell you what bungee jumping is like. You make a foolish decision, that's the first step, to get on top of something high, and you tie something bungee-ish to your feet. Someone pushes you off. I don't know, or you jump. It's one of those two things. Neither seems like a good idea. And you plummet down toward the earth, scaring yourself because it seems like you're going to hit, but then you don't. And you magically get popped back up. Now, I have never bungee jumped. If you ask me what it's like, I can tell you with that explanation. I know it in my head. I've seen other people do it. I have never experienced bungee jumping. And if God is good, I will never experience bungee jumping. So I know about it in my head, but it didn't impact my life in any significant sense at all. I've not had the experience of it. So the warning here that we covered last week, and I don't want to re-preach that sermon, is that there is a danger that we know about what we know about God is only head knowledge. We think of God like I think of bungee jumping. I know the information. I've read the scripture. I've sat in classes. I've been under teaching. I know all these things in my head, but I've never jumped in. I've never experienced it. And as a result of that, I'm hearing all this truth given to me, but I don't care. I just deliberately and perhaps even gleefully do all the things that I know God does not want me to do. I know Jesus died for me. I know it in my head but I I just don't care enough for it to impact my life. And the writer of Hebrews warns us. He says, be worried about this. If you do that, you've rejected the only sacrifice that has been given for your sins. And now you're on the wrong side of a living God. But the next verse presents a contrast with a very different kind of person. This is verse 32. Instead, this is the contrast now to what we just read. Think back to the days after you were first enlightened and you understood who Jesus was. 
Now, this is a different kind of knowledge. This has more to do with the saving knowledge. Other places, the Bible talks about tasting and seeing that the Lord of good, Lord is good. Now this is experience. This is something that you might have initially heard the truth. It went through your head, but it has filtered down into your heart and soul. This is something that is now an experience that is impacting your life. I was trying to think of some analogies in in life where I've had experiences like this where something went from my head to my heart. Uh, The difference was I knew about something, but then I experienced something. So... uh, there is the best blues musician in the history of blues. His name is Johnny Lang. If you disagree with me on that, you're wrong. I listened to his music for years on CDs, and my one of my bucket lists was, I need to see this dude in concert. So I see him for the first time at Interlochen. And I'm telling you, it was basically a spiritual experience. Not from my wife who was with me because she doesn't care for blues. Uh, but for me, I was like, I don't know, were we in the first row, second row? I don't know. Uh, I was all in, man. I was going to experience this. And it, it actually had a profound impact on my life. And, and Johnny Lang is a Christian also who writes these deeply moving songs of faith. And now I knew what it was like to really ex- have the Johnny Lang experience. Not just the CD that I listened to which is worth listening to for all of you, don't get me wrong, but there was something about tasting and seeing that that changed me. And I was a fan before, but now I was really a fan because I knew what it was like. Before I got married, I knew what marriage was. I could define it for you. Yep, a man and a woman, they sign this thing and they have this ceremony and now they're married Okay, but it wasn't till I was married, if you'd say to me, do you know what marriage is? I would go, oh, now I know. And the longer I've been married, you'd say, how about now? Yeah, every year I know a little more. I know more than I used to. The experience is irreplaceable. Now I've tasted and seen what marriage is. And I can speak to you not just from my head, but from my heart. And because I now know what marriage is, it has changed me. It has changed how I live my life to be in a marriage. Uh, I was trying to think of something that has more of a saving aspect to it. I could have told you before my heart attack what it looked like to live a life that was a heart-healthy lifestyle. That was head knowledge, which really didn't filter down um, into my Kentucky Fried Chicken visits. Then I had a heart attack. And then I got saving knowledge in a sense. Now I knew why it was so important. And none of these analogies are perfect, by the way. I've just tried to think of ways in my life I've experienced something that's even remotely similar. Now when someone says, uh, eat more vegetables, I got it. I've experienced what it's like to have that heart attack. I experienced what it was like to be saved. I could tell you now what it's like for those things to happen to me because I experienced them. And that experience changed my life because it changed the way I lived my life. This is the idea now. Think back to the days you were first in light and you understood who Jesus was. These are people who committed themselves and they were in now. They weren't just processing information up in their head. They had decided, okay, this is where my life goes. And now they begin to live as disciples of Jesus. They begin to experience what it's like to order your life and live in the kingdom with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God working in them.
Now they get it. If someone says, what's it like to be a Christian? They're not just giving you a list of facts. They're saying, I could tell you what it's like to follow and love Christ because I follow and love Christ. This is what it's like. So that's what we're talking about. Verse 32. Think back to the days you were first enlightened and understood who Jesus was. And then the writer continues, this is what happened as a result of your understanding who Jesus was. You endured a great combat of sufferings. Your Bible most likely does not use that phrase. I love this phrase. If you go into some of the commentary on this, this is what's captured in this language. It wasn't just that you suffered once. It's like you're in the arena. And gladiator after gladiator is coming after you, and now you've got to fight. You endured a great combat of sufferings in the name of the Lord. When people held you up for public scorn and ridicule, literally, this is once again arena language. They exhibited you like wild beasts. They assaulted your honor, your good name. This wasn't something going, hey, you're an idiot. This was something where you legitimately experienced pain and hardship because someone went after you. And they abused your partners and companions in the faith in the same way. Remember how you had compassion for those in prison. How you accepted the pillaging of your possessions with calm delight and even gladness, knowing that you had a far greater and more enduring possession. So last week... People who just know, they don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. And as a result, not only are they not faithful to Jesus, not only do they not endure, but at some point they begin to happily and willingly walk away. But now this is the contrast. This is the person who has now experienced what it means to commit themselves to Christ. They know what it means that Jesus is at work in them. And now what's happening is they're enduring. They're not only not walking away, They're walking with Christ into deeper and deeper suffering for the sake of Christ. And the result of this is delight and gladness. So I'm looking at the highlights of these two paragraphs. And these things stand out to me. They've endured immense suffering for Christ. They were scorned and ridiculed and dishonored publicly. They watched their friends endure the same. They've been jailed. I didn't add this to this list. They've had their stuff pillaged. And yet, they're still compassionate and joyful endurance in the midst of suffering for Christ. So this is what it looks like when it really sinks in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We not only endure, we endure things with gladness. We endure suffering peacefully. I was listening this week to some sermons on this passage online, and I found a speaker who was at a church in Atlanta, Georgia. As he was talking about this passage, he began to talk about his life. He had been jailed for his faith somewhere in a country in Africa. Like, okay, I've never been jailed for my faith. As I think about the things that I have to endure, it's typically Facebook insults. This this dude, he speaks with some authority, And he talked about the gladness and the peace that God provides in those moments. So this stands out to me as I read this, that we Christians who are easily offended, when people insult our faith or insult us because of our faith, we don't understand who Jesus is. If we get quickly defensive and quickly angry and we're belligerent and we lash out in the face of some type of hardship and ridicule and frankly for most of us that's almost entirely verbal 
If, if our response is that kind of response, we don't understand Jesus. We've not yet really tasted and seen what it's like to live with Christ in us as the hope of glory, to live with the Holy Spirit guiding, leading, comforting, directing. We don't yet understand what it means to be a child of God, loved by God, valued by God, given value and worth and dignity because we're in his image and we're his child. If we understand, really understand the experience of being like this in Jesus, none of those things matter. We just don't have to respond in any way that is defensive or angry or uptight. See, this is the principle of turning the other cheek in Scripture. So one of Jesus' hard teachings is if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also, which is oddly specific language. Right, so here's here's what's happening. We often hear this as um, this is a call for Christians to just kind of let people walk over them. That's not what this call is at all. So at the time, for Jesus' Jewish audience that he was talking to, it was not unusual for the Romans to abuse them. That was taking their coats and cloaks, which was part of the teaching. This was striking them. So typically, the person was right-handed. For a lot of human history, the left hand was considered sinister and kind of evil and bad. So even if you were naturally left-handed, you worked on your right hand. So if I am facing someone, let's see how I can do this. If I am facing, another person is facing me, and I want to strike them on the right cheek, I have to backhand them. So Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, he doesn't say let you hit them Let them hit you there again. That's a lot of pronouns to get right. He says, give them the other cheek, which means now they would have to slap you like this. And this is why this is important. This is a slap of derision and dismissiveness. This is, you're not, you're barely worth my time. I'm not about to hit you with full force. The best you get is a slap. I don't know if you've ever seen movies where people slap someone like this. My first thought is, that's not very effective if you're really trying to hurt someone. That's not the point of that kind of slap, is to demean and diminish someone. So Jesus tells his disciples, when people hit at you in a way that dismisses you as a human being and is derisive and insulting, what I want you to do is step back into this situation, but now... Get them, to if they're going to strike you again, have them do it on equal ground. Now, if you offer that Roman soldier this cheek, uh, either they don't strike you, they look like a coward, or they do strike you and now they've treated you as an equal. It puts them in a tough dilemma. This is the principle of heaping coals of fire on someone's head which is another weird phrase in scripture. But it was something, this idea was when you do that, uh, they're uncomfortable. Because now they have to consider you as a person worthy of being treated as an equal. And I think that's the idea in this passage. That as we respond to situations where for the sake of Christ, we are hurt in some fashion, or we are publicly shamed How we respond will either be one 
that if someone already is inclined to think less of us, they'll just think even less of us, no matter if what we say is true, just by our attitude and our response. But there is a way we respond where we heap coals of fire on their head. We make them uncomfortable. We didn't respond like they wanted us to, like people who are just controlled by our emotions and easily angered and snowflakes, call it the word you want. The, what the Bible offers is a new alternative. It says, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You're a child of God. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they take from you or try to take from you. That wasn't where your value and worth and dignity was found anyway. It was found in Christ. So now you can turn the other cheek. You can calmly and lovingly respond. And I, I don't know if you've been in situations where you had, have had opportunity to do that. Well, no, I'm sure you have. I just don't know how you've responded. But if you responded in that way, you know two things happen. One of two things happen. One is the person attacking you just gets more angry. Or the second is they calm down and begin to respond to you as if you have the value and worth and dignity that you already do. If they get angrier, odds are pretty good you've heaped coals of fire on their head. They're uncomfortable. They recognize in that moment, you're the better person because of how you've responded. And they didn't think that was true of you. It's this brilliant way of responding in such a way that we see the peace of Christ in us. I don't need what you have to give me in terms of value and worth and approval. I don't need that. I have it from Jesus. It shows peace. Okay. In some sense, I could just give a big collective shrug. If someone tells me that as a Christian, I'm an idiot, and I've had that happen to me before, um, they just don't understand how any rational thinking person who has any sense of the reality of the world could be a Christian. Well, that's fine. I mean, I'm going to talk with you about why I think my faith is grounded in reality, but you don't like me? That's fine. I don't follow Jesus for you to like me. But I'd like for you to like me as much as is possible. I want to live at peace with everyone. But what am I going to do? You're an idiot too. And then where do we go? Then there's no more conversation. Now it's just yelling. And now someone walks away wondering, I wonder what Jesus is like. I just interacted with some of Jesus' people, and that wasn't good at all. Why would they find Jesus compelling? Is it part of what I'm offering as a follower of Christ, this countercultural sense of what Jesus is doing in me? That's my claim, is that Christ comes into me and transforms me. My claim is that Jesus is making someone new. That now I have hope, I have peace, I have love, I have charity, I have grace, I have truth. I have justice. I'm making all these claims that now, because of the guidance of God's word, the guidance of God's spirit in me, the help of God's people around me, because of Christ in me, I'm a new person. All right. What this passage is talking about is, do you realize what that newness looks like in practical terms as our life plays out? So when someone scorns or dishonors us, do we attack or do we get defensive? If it's in a public venue, do we try to give what we got and humiliate them? Do we tend to say, hey, if they're going to be jerks, I can be a jerk. They opened the door. Listen, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to us. 
What's the popular phrase? Then the whole world becomes eyeless and toothless, something like that. Right? If someone takes my tooth, I'm not empowered by Christ to take theirs. If someone shames my name, Christ doesn't live in me so I can shame their name. If someone insults me publicly on social media where all of my friends can see it, the Holy Spirit in me does not give me the wisdom to insult them in return. I am supposed to be a new creation. I have the opportunity in that moment to show what it looks like for the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus to come come into those kind of situations and change things. Would we accept the pillaging of our possessions with calm delight and even gladness, knowing that we have a far greater and more enduring possession? If someone were to fine us for not using our business the way the government wants us to use our business, is our response calm delight and gladness that we have the opportunity to take a stand for Christ? Or is our response to gather an army of people around us to fight? I just don't see it in this passage. In this passage, I, I see the early church and the writer of Hebrews seeing that as an opportunity to show something countercultural. These life circumstances will not unnerve me. They will not upset me. They will not rock my world. I knew this was coming. I'm a follower of Jesus. I live in a culture that does not agree with me on a lot of things. And if I'm going to take that stand, i got to buckle up. Because one of the results of that will be I will pay a price. I might pay it verbally or emotionally. I might pay it physically. I might pay it financially. It's coming. What do we do with it? How do we use that opportunity for the glory of God? Now, I should note, there are opportunities where we say, I don't think that's fair. Part of turning the other cheek is saying, I would like you to engage with me as someone who is also worthy of respect and dignity. Take Paul. The Apostle Paul was not afraid to use his Roman citizenship to avoid things like whippings or floggings. He's like, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. Treat me like a Roman citizen. So I'm not saying that we as Christians don't use the legal protections we have that are afforded to us. We're not called to be gluttons for punishment for Christ's sake. But even as we do that, do we exhibit a calm and joyful demeanor? Like, hey, I live in a culture that will hopefully protect me in certain situations. I'm thinking now of all the stories you hear about the bakers, the florists, etc. So I'll appeal to that. That's available to me. Apostle Paul did it. I can do it too. But what is my attitude? Am I exhibiting calmness, joy, happiness? Um, maybe even, dare I say, something of a carefree spirit. Because I know that even if this doesn't work out for me, even if I take a hit financially, I'm a child of God. Do I believe that God will take care of me? Do I believe that God will be faithful? It's, It's a challenge, I think, of trust in these situations. 
So we're called to compassionate and joyful endurance in the midst of suffering for Christ. And here's what I love about this. It means I don't have to be emotionally manipulated by a manipulative world. That means I can go into situations, whether it's one-on-one conversations or something in a more public venue, and if someone tries to get under my skin by insulting my faith or insulting me as a Christian or stands I take on on moral issues, uh, that's okay. I, I can give a fairly large emotional shrug on that issue. Didn't expect you to agree with me. That's fine. I, I have a response for it. I'd like to engage with you on it, but it doesn't ruin my day or ruin my sense of self or any of those things. I'm free from the manipulation of the world around me. It means I don't have to worry about how insults or shaming or hardship will impact my soul because God is keeping me safe. People can say whatever they want to about me as a Christian. Oh, dear God, can I just give a big emotional shrug? Okay. That's fine. I know what Christ thinks of this situation. I know how Christ views me. We're good. It means slander or meanness or even mockery only gets the time from me that it takes to shrug. My life might get harder because of my commitment to Christ, but my heart doesn't have to. I love the freedom that's contained in this possibility. The author says, we do this because we have this enduring possession Um, We're going to cover a lot of ground in three minutes and pick it up in Message Plus. I want to get to the end of this. This enduring possession, I find this fascinating. Other places in Scripture, the Bible talks about how we have Christ, we have heaven, all these things that await us. That's not what this passage is referring to, and I didn't realize it until I dug into this passage. This passage should better say, you have your own selves for a better possession. In other words, as you experience life in Christ and you see the change in yourself, do you not love what Christ is doing in you? Is basically what this passage is saying. One of the rewards of following Christ is that as new creatures, we begin to see what this looks like now, this transformation. Uh, A guy named McLaren, he paraphrased it this way. Under all other circumstances and forms of life, the true self is domineered over, brought into slavery and dragged away from its proper bearings by storms and swarms of lusts and passions and inclinations and ambitions and senses. A man's flesh is his master or his pride is his master or some fraction of his nature is his master and he himself is an oppressed slave. The only way to get the mastery of yourselves to be able to keep a tight hand upon all the inferior parts of your nature and to have that self-command and self-possession without which there is nothing noble in life is to go to God and say, Oh Lord, I cannot rule this anarchic being of mine. Take it into your hands. Here are the reins. Do with me as you will. Then you will own yourselves. Till then the devil and the world and the flesh and the pomps and the prides and the passions and lusts and laziness that are in your nature will own you. But if we have exercised the faith, we cast itself wholly upon God. We therein and thereby win God and our own selves also. And that is one of the meanings of saving your own souls. 
And then the author says, verse 35, remember these things. Do not abandon your confidence, which leads to rich rewards. I mentioned last week this idea of uh, that confidence is the shield. But it's, the Bible talks about the shield of faith. It say, don't abandon this. Do you understand what this does for you? The last thing the author says in this chapter then, verse 36, simply endure. For when you've done as God requires you, you will receive the promise. And I'm going to jump to verse 39. My friends, we are not those who give up hope and are lost. We are the company of those who live by faith and are saved. Which is beautiful. Now the next chapter in Hebrews is the faith chapter. Because in the last couple of verses, and if you pick up notes, you can read some more detail I'm not covering here as part of my closing. Chapter 10 ends on this thing. You live by faith. You need faith. Faith, 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 faith. Hebrews 11 is a whole chapter that tells you more what the writer means when they talk about faith. Next week, I'm going to be visiting my mom in Texas. Scott Smith is going to be walking you through how faith is portrayed in Hebrews 11. Uh, that, I think, in some ways, will be the capstone to this week's message and last week's message. It, it keeps moving and telling this greater and greater story. And as we see here today, if we live by faith, we're saved. What do we mean, live by faith? But for that cliffhanger, you got to wait till next week. Lord... I'm grateful that you are a God who loves us so much that you gave us Jesus, that you give us your Holy Spirit, that you give us your word, that you give us the church, your body here on earth. Uh, I'm grateful, Lord, that with your help we can endure, we can have confidence, that we can have peace and gladness in all circumstances in life, that you are in the process of molding your children into your image. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that if there's anyone here who has not given their life to you, it's surrender and submission and worship so that you begin this work in them, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit moves them, that they respond to that movement and embrace you as their Savior. And for those of us in this room who have done this already, I pray, Lord, that we increasingly understand you and know you and learn what it means to live this bold, peaceful, glad life in every situation. May we more and more taste and see that you are good. And may that more and more impact our lives not just in what we do, but how we feel, how we process the world. And when we do it all, not just for our good, but for your glory. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.